0: If you're around in the 1970s, you might remember the old comedy show, Hee Haw. This was back before there were 2,000 channels to surf and find what you want. And this was one of the ones that were on. And I remember as a kid uh, listening to this show as my parents watched it. And they had this comedy skit of these old moonshiners living in Cornfield uh, County. And they had this song called Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Do any of you remember this? Some of you, would you like to sing it, Jerry? Uh, Okay, okay. What has this line is they bemoan just the tragedy that has fallen upon them, and it's usually like very petty things. But the chorus goes like this. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. It's a very catchy tune, and if you haven't heard it, you should... YouTube this and find it. Uh, There's a few clips up there, but I remember as a little kid uh, singing along to that, not really understanding what it was about, but it was slapstick humor, and I kind of laughed along at the things that they were saying. But here's the question. What happens when what happens is no laughing matter? When it really does feel like excessive misery has fallen upon you? Not just Trivial matters, but things that are weighty, that affect you and your life and the life of your loved ones. How do we handle that? How do we approach that? What kind of mindset should we have? Are we just victims of, of the chaos going on around us? This is an important question to ask because it deals at the very heart of how we conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus in a world where it seems like there's lots of chaos, lots of gloom and despair and agony. C.S. Lewis, the professor of Oxford, wrote a couple of books dealing with the problem of suffering. One of them was called The Problem of Pain, which is really kind of an intellectual approach to the issue of suffering and evil in this world. But he wrote another book later on called A Grief Observed that he wrote in the wake of the passing of his wife. And it had a very different tone and a very different flavor. And one place he said, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I appreciate his honesty there. We're going to call our study today, Navigating the Storms of Life. And we're going to just look at these first opening verses of the book of James and and acquaint ourselves with the context of what's going on here. And so, as we read a while ago, it begins like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, who is James? James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, He did not follow Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, he was, along with some other siblings, thinking that Jesus was a little bit out of his mind. But he was converted when Jesus, who was crucified, appeared to him afterwards, living, and showed himself to him. And James became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now imagine if you grew up around Jesus, who did no wrong, (laughs) and you like all of us, do wrong, and Jesus starts talking like he's the Messiah. How would you handle that? (laughs) Probably for many of us, we'd be very suspect, right? Even though he's a really good guy, still you're living in his shadow. And what would it take for you to believe that he actually is the anointed one of God, the chosen one? Or for James, it took Jesus rising from the dead before he would commit himself to him And he also became the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. After the apostles began preaching, there's mass conversions of people. And there were thousands of people in Jerusalem who were believing the gospel, believing that Jesus was the Messiah, and seeking to, to, to transform their lives with that good news and to follow Jesus. And James became the prominent leader. In fact, when persecution broke out, it was so intense, he was one of the few that stayed behind. And he actually gave his life for his testimony about Jesus. And so in this opening verse, we're told that James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is interesting, because he could say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't cast himself that way. He uses that phrase, servant, which is used to so many prophets and followers of God through the years, and applies that to himself. So he's the servant of God, and he's also the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, for James, what's most important is not the fact that he was related to Jesus physically, but that he now belonged to the spiritual family of God by faith. And so he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. If you know the scriptures, you know that the 12 tribes is a designation for the the Israel of the Old Testament. And now he's applying it to the church who's been scattered because of persecution. And so he's writing to these people who've had their lives upended who are starting everything over from scratch. Fleeing, trying to find work, trying to find food, trying to survive. And so James knows that about his people, so he doesn't piddle around and getting to counsel he wants to give them. He just jumps right in. And the first thing he tells them is this. Trials are an unavoidable reality. Listen to what he says in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In the Greek, that word brothers is inclusive, meaning brothers and sisters, unless the context gives otherwise. And so some translations go ahead and flesh that out. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. The Apostle Peter put it like this. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Both James and Peter As well as Jesus and the other apostles, leaned on the wisdom of their ancestors. You think of Job, who said, Man is born of woman. I'm sorry, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Or the sage of Ecclesiastes, What has man from all the toil and striving of heart? For all his days are full of sorrow. Now, people lived back then before the days of modern conveniences that make our life so much better. We're meeting in an air-conditioned room. We have had breakfast this morning. You know, we we have many modern conveniences. But people way back then, I mean, a lot of them were subsistence farmers just trying to make ends meet. And they knew the change of weather, a raiding party, anything could upend life really quickly. And so they were acquainted with grief and with sorrow in ways that, for many of us, we feel like shouldn't ever happen to us so James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. So he's not just talking about the intense persecution they're facing, but just trials of any kind. We can apply it to our own life, whether we drop our iPhone and, you know, the screen shatters and we go outside, go to that important meeting and we find a flat tire, or we just have relational difficulties in our life too. Things like wars going on in the world that bring us grief and heartache to persecution, and just even the trial of death, losing loved ones. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That word meet literally means to fall into. And I looked at some other translations just to see how they uh, translated this word. One of them says, when you encounter various trials, or when you experience various trials, when you face trials of many kinds, there's a couple paraphrases that put it like this, when troubles of any kind come your way, or when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. I really like that last one. (laughs) Kind of all joy, my brothers and sisters, when trials come at you from all sides, when you face them, when you experience them, when they just pile on top of you. What is James saying? He's saying it is a certainty that we will face trials in this life. And Someone says, okay, James, I get it. Life is full of ups and downs. I don't think anybody is denying that. And true, but just let me ask you this question. How do you respond when things don't go well? When trials come at you from all different ways? What comes out of your heart? What comes out of your mouth? What, what enters your mind? James tells us that trials are an unavoidable reality. But he also says that they call for an unwavering response. Notice that he says here, count it all joy. Well, what does he mean by that? That sounds so odd, doesn't it? When a trial hits, you're supposed to count it all joy. One commentator put it like this. Each word in the prescription is important. Let's break it down. Count it all joy. That is 100% pure joy. Now, raise your hand if you woke up this morning thinking... I wonder what kind of trials I can encounter today to make my life that much better. <laughs> or what kind of bad news can I hear today that, you know what, just will fill me with so much joy. That sounds odd, doesn't it? But that's that's kind of the dissonance we feel when we hear James say, Count it all joy. He he doesn't say count it, you know, seventy-five percent joy, twenty-five percent annoyance. He doesn't even say just count it fifty percent joy and frustration he doesn't even give us the 95% joy and 5% just being perturbed he doesn't he doesn't let us have that he says count it all joy and someone says come on James I and everybody I know count it all joy when we get out of the trial, right (laughs) how can you tell us to count it all joy whenever we fall into them Do you get that kind of question popping up in your mind when you hear these words, count it all joy? I don't know about you, but I'm I'm really joyful when the trial's over. And so note that James does not say, enjoy the trial. This is so important. Notice that he doesn't say, enjoy the trial, but rather to count the trial all joy. That's why he says, count it all joy. That, That word in the original language, It means to consider, to reckon, to regard. It's actually an accounting term. You're supposed to take something into account, to not let it go by, but to think in a certain way. So in other words, God is calling us to respond to the trials of life with our minds engaged. There's, There's something we're supposed to be doing when we hit these trials. Let me just say the trials have a unique way of revealing what we truly believe about life and of God. Now think about this. If you go outside today and you see on your car a flat tire, what comes out of you in that moment? What do you believe about the universe and about God and his sovereignty over your life in that moment? Or do you forget all that and feel like chaos just reigns? So James says... Count all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. James is wanting them to remember something that they have been taught, something that they know, both by experience and and by discipleship. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's an interesting phrase, the testing of your faith. In other words, when you face trials, there is something going on. There is a testing of your faith. There's a testing of your trust in God. There's a a testing of whether or not you believe the good news about Jesus Christ. So think about this. When when you take a test, whether you're at school taking a test, or you have to take a test at work for qualifications or or whatever, when you take a test, what's involved in that? There's, There's always three things, right? There's the test the actual thing that you're going through. There's the test taker, which is you in that situation. And there's someone who's giving the test or administrating that test. That's always going on. So when James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, he's wanting to call into mind the fact that there are larger things going on than just simply the thing facing you at that moment. You've heard that phrase, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold, Right? When metals are heated up, as that fire underneath it increases in intensity and heat, what happens to that metal as it melts? Impurities rise to the surface, right? Dross accumulates. And when you're trying to make that metal, that gold, really pure, you keep heating that fire, you scrape off the dross. The fire gets hotter, and more impurities rise to the surface. There's something like that going on in our life. When we face trials, there's a a testing going on. Not just simply in the sense of taking a test, but also in the sense of of, of our faith being tested for its genuineness. In fact, Peter puts it like this, the apostle. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I'm so thankful he puts it that way, by the way. He doesn't say you you just kept, kept a stiff upper lip, right? He said you've been grieved by various trials. And then he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. Here, the apostle tells us that our faith is much more precious than gold. And it is being tested by various trials that that even grieve us. And our faith is being purified impurities are rising to the surface. God is scraping it off. And there's a story told of a, of a young man who was watching his grandfather do this very thing of, of heating and purifying metals and he asked his grandfather when do you know when it's done? And his grandfather said when I can see my reflection in the metal. And I think that's a, that's a great lesson for us. I mean God is working to produce his character in our lives. There's An important thing that I came across in my preparation of this, I was reading a commentary in the book of James by Alec Montier, and he said this. This is interesting. There's several uh, screens here, so follow along with me. We may say that we believe that God is our Father, but as long as we remain untested on the point, our belief falls short of steady conviction. But suppose the day comes, as it does and will, when circumstances seem to mock our creed, when cruel, the cruelty of life denies his fatherliness, his silence calls into question his almightiness, and the sheer, haphazard, meaningless jumble of events challenges the possibility of a creator's ordering hand. It is in this way that life's trials test our faith for its genuineness. Let me tell you about this strange case of a college kid, a dead battery, and a few bad days. <laughs> Back when I was a college student here at Texas A&M, I was uh, working, putting myself through school and eating Top Ramen and getting the cheap pizza at Little Caesars and trying to make it last throughout the week. And I didn't have spare change. I was donating plasma. I was doing everything I could just to make ends meet. And one day I went outside and jumped in my little Mazda pickup and started the car, or tried to at least, and it was completely dead. And the first thought that crossed my mind was, oh. I didn't sing the song at the moment, but the heart attitude was gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. I did not have the money to change this battery, but I got a friend to take me to the place where I had bought it from, and they looked at it, and they said, yep, it's completely dead, that's the bad news. And again, in my mind, (laughs) gloom, despair, and agony on me. But he said, the good news is, is that you have credit on this battery, and so it's only going to cost $8 to replace it. And I was like, yes, that's really good news. And so got that changed, and let me just say, I, I didn't pass that test very well, the way I reacted to it. But then a few days later, I went outside, jumped in my truck, and put my key in and started it, or tried to at least, and it didn't start. And I was like, oh, man. Gloom agony <laughs> on me. And so I went and opened the hood and acted like I knew what I was doing. I really don't know much about cars, but I wiggled a few things and wiggled the battery cable. And I knew, noticed that it was loose. And I was like, "Oh, well, I can tighten that. I know how to do that." So I got out my toolkit that was behind my seat in my truck and tightened that up and started it up and started just fine. But there it was. Two tests, the exact same test, given to me several days apart. And I failed at both times because of my initial reaction. I didn't count it all joy. I didn't think, "All right." God's at work here. He's producing character in me. He's working all things together for the good. I just acted like I had bad luck. Here's an important point. We are not saying the reason why you fall into trials is because you need your faith to be tested. Rather, we are saying that when you fall into trials, your faith is being tested. And I just want to bring this up because sometimes... We have the attitude, like, if I just had more faith, my life would go better, right? I may not say that out loud, but you might say, Lord, I've been going to church every week. I've been studying my Bible, and this is happening to me. Why, right? Life happens, and living in a fallen world, things are going to happen. So what we want to say is that in this world, you will have trials, from the greatest of us to the least. Jesus himself... The most perfect person who ever lived faced trials, faced persecution, faced slander. He was crucified. All right, he went through difficulties. And so, when we face those, and we need to be careful when we, when we give counsel to one another as well. In some circles of Christian, Christian churches, you'll hear people say, The reason why you're going through this is because you've sinned. God may discipline you if you sin. But we can't do that, we can't say that unless we have divine knowledge that that God is doing this for a particular reason. But what we can do is come alongside someone and say, I'm sorry this is happening to you, and seek to help them refocus their eyes on God, who does work all things together for good. So the simple fact is that sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we don't know why something is happening in our life. We can't control that, but we can control how we respond. So James tells us to consider it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Now how many of you, say this last week or last month, have even used that word steadfast? You know, it's one of those kind of fancy words, and many of us go, well, we feel like you know we should know that what that means. And we just don't use it that often, right? The original word in Greek carries the idea of endurance or, or perseverance, Patience, constancy, the ability to to keep on keeping on. So I like to think of it this way spiritual stamina. The testing of your faith is producing in you a spiritual stamina. That is a a stamina, a a, a training in your life that enables you to respond to the things of this world in a way that honors God and and honors Christ, who is conforming you to his image. I remember this time in in the book of Jeremiah. (laughs) Jeremiah. He received a call that I would never want to have. (laughs) He basically was called by God to a very dark time in the nation of Israel, and God told him, like, everyone's going to reject you. It's going to be bad. It's going to be hard. But I want you still to say what I give you to say. And there's a place about 12 chapters into the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah comes before the Lord, and he is just lamenting how difficult life is and how everything is just not going the way that he wants it to go. And God says this, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? (laughs) I love that question that God is asking him. Jeremiah, men have wearied you, but I've designed you to race with thoroughbreds. And if men wear you out, how are you going to race with the best creatures on earth? So James has told us the trials are an unavoidable reality. They call for an unwavering response. And the next thing he's going to tell us is that the trials can yield an unimaginable reward. Look at what he says in verse 4. Let steadfastness, or spiritual stamina, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I think when many of us read that, we respond by saying, nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> How can James tell us that? the trials when they work their way into our life and the accumulation effect of that is we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? It's a good question, right? That word perfect is actually going to be used in the book of James seven times. And it's an important phrase. I want to quote something that Tim Mackey from the Bible Project said. He said that word perfect is really important because it is repeated seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs you have received from Jesus. Let's just pause for a second and say, how many of us are just very much aware that our lives are not lining up with our beliefs and practices more often than we want to admit? But he goes on and says here James knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people and to make them whole. So God is, is wanting to take the shattering of your life and the ways that, it are, that it's broken and begin putting you back together, right? We've got that nursery rhyme that we said as kids about Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Well, God is at work. Sometimes that's a slow and painful process. But he's at work putting us back together to become our true selves, our whole selves, in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a lifelong process, isn't it? And it will be completed when God returns in the person of Jesus to set everything to right. And so it looks like this. We encounter trials. And if we respond in ways that are appropriate, and counting up joy, believing that God is at work, he's producing stuff in me, there's a spiritual stamina that takes place that allows you to approach life and handle difficulties better than you did last year, five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. And God's producing a spiritual maturity in your life, a Christ-likeness in your life. And so he says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, we need to let this trial work itself in our life. I feel like James is saying something like this. Do not short-circuit a trial's intended effect by the way that you respond to it, <laughs> like that college kid that I once was when my car battery died two times on me in a couple days. Don't shortchange that trial's intended effect, but use it as an opportunity to grow. So i got two points of application for us as we wrap this up. The first one is this. Let's acknowledge that life at times is overwhelming. We will have trials come at us from all different angles. I don't know about you, but in Heather's life and mine, it seems like they always come in triplets. (laughs) One, two, three, it's almost like we can count on it. But life at times is just simply overwhelming. And the approach is not just to have a stiff upper lip. It's not to have a Pollyanna approach, just to say that the sun's going to come out tomorrow, It's not to be a fake, you know, a fake happy person. But it is to count trials as joy. There's something that Mother Teresa said that I thought was really interesting when I came across it. I know God will not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish that he didn't trust me so much. And Mother Teresa is an amazing person, and um, I, I think that uh, you know, her life is, is just such an example of what it means to, to seek to follow Jesus in serving others well. And so I, I hate to, to maybe just correct something that she says, um, and I think that she probably would agree with me on this, but it's actually not the case that God is not going to give you anything you can't handle. God is going to give you more than you can handle, and that's actually good news. There is a saying in our Christian circles that we run in, that God's not going to give you anything you can't handle. And that's just simply not true. You may not have to deal with something other people deal with, but there will be times in your life, maybe not now, but there will be times when you're simply overwhelmed with what is going on in your life, and you can't handle it. There's no pretending, there's no faking it. And you just get mad. But it's actually good news. Because what God is going to do is to give you things that you can handle with the strength he provides. And with the power that he gives. This is how the Apostle Paul put it when he was writing to the Corinthians about a time when life was overwhelming for him. He told them, We do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul heard some of the things we said about God not giving you anything that you can't handle. He would have said, oh, buckle up. We did not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Isn't that a fascinating statement? God did give me so much that it was overwhelming me, Paul says, even to the point where I thought I was going to die. But that happened, or at least one of the reasons that happened, was so that I would not lean on myself, but rather to lean on God, to rely on Him who raises even the dead. So let's just admit that life at times is overwhelming. And that helps us with the second point of application. Let's view every trial as an opportunity to trust God again with our lives. I don't know what's going to happen this week in your life, but whatever happens, it's an opportunity for you to trust God once again with your life. I've shared this quote with you before. It's one of my, my favorite ones. It's, I have a handful of quotes that just have uh, helped define and shape my life. This is by a man named Alan Redpath, and he was a pastor this last century. He said, There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. There is nothing that happens in our lives that happens apart from God noticing, and apart from God's permission, apart from God's decree in our life, as He works all things out together from the good, for the good. And sometimes we don't understand it, as Alan Redpath said at the very end. Sometimes it takes it may even take heaven for us to understand. Why God allowed some things into our life that we would rather not have. But there is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch you until first of all. It has gone past God and past Christ right through to you. And if it's come that far, God has great purposes in mind. One of which, at least is to make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter tells us that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example so that you might follow in his steps. How did Christ suffer? We're told that he committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, when he was suffering did not retaliate. He didn't lash out. Instead, he used it as an example to trust his Heavenly Father yet again. Peter also say, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Did you hear that? Let those who suffer according to God's will. In other words, Peter is a believer in the sovereignty of God that nothing happens apart from his will in our life. And so if we experience things, it's not that chaos reigns supreme, but rather God reigns supreme. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. (laughs) If you're suffering, entrust your soul to God, entrust your life to God, and don't forget to do good. I like how he just kind of throws that last little piece in there. Why is that important? Because I think sometimes when we experience suffering, we can get so overwhelmed with our pain and the chaos that we just become completely self-absorbed. And Peter says, look, don't forget to be doing good. Don't forget to serve other people. Don't forget that you have power, maybe not to change your circumstances, but you have power still to bless other people. The way P- um, I'm sorry, uh, Paul put it was like this. <laughs> When when bad things happen, when anxiety is produced in your life, here's what you need to know. The Lord is near. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't checked out. He hasn't written you off. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, When life gets turned upside down, don't respond just with anxiety. In fact, he says don't even go there, which Paul, you know, at other times, confessed that he deals with anxiety. (laughs) But here, he says, look, the Lord is near. He is with you. He is more close to you than you know. Therefore, don't be anxious. Chaos doesn't rule. He does. So present your requests before him. Let him know what you need, what's happening in this moment, how you're experiencing. Bring it all to God. And as you do that, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, you don't understand how God gives you peace in that moment until you bring your anxious heart before him. This peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, friends, sometimes God calms the storm surrounding his children. And sometimes he calms his children and their surrounding storm. Your hope is not that the trial is over. It may end soon. It may be a lifelong trial. Your life may be difficult in this world. But what God wants to do is to walk with you through pain and suffering, accomplishing his purposes and calming you in the midst of them with a the supernatural joy. So, every trial, with every trial, that is, We have the option of trusting that God is at work, growing us to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an option that is available to us. Do you take that option? Let me encourage you to do so. We're going to sing in just a moment these words. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Within the dark and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. These words sung together an opportunity for us to trust God once again with our lives. And when we can't see what God is going on, when when the circumstances of our lives just seems to, to put him at a distance, that's precisely when we need to trust in his unchanging grace. When the storms of life are going around us, our anchor, what's that anchor? Trust in the gospel of Jesus. That anchor is what holds within the veil of the surrounding darkness. Charles Spurgeon once said, God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. God is for you, my friends, in Christ Jesus. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't written you off. He hasn't put you on a shelf and gone on to more important things. He loves you. He created you. And he is working all things together for your good, for his glory. And he wants to make you more like Jesus Christ. And I wish I could say he could do that apart from trials. I would much rather have a pamphlet or just read the book of James or something like that without having to experience them. But there's something about going through the mess where we learn to trust in ways that we could not have learned otherwise. So Mercy Hill, as you navigate the storms of life, May the joy of this truth anchor your soul to reality. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you.